Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. We're going to be there, and we're also going to be in Colossians 3, 16 and 17. So when you find Ephesians 5, 18 to 21, mark that. Also mark Colossians 3, 16 and 17. We're going to turn back and forth between them relatively quickly, so just I'll be sure to cue you as we turn, so just follow along, but... Ephesians chapter 5, 18 to 21, and Colossians 3, 16 and 17 is where we're going to be this morning. Well, our emotions are tied very closely to our senses. And that seems kind of strange if you really think about it, but our emotions are tied very closely to our senses. I want to just do kind of an experiment, and you can kind of let me know by the looks on your faces what you tend to think about these kinds of things. So just imagine... You're on the beach in the evening. No one is there around you. You're on the white sands of Gulf Shores. It's the evening, the sun is setting, and you hear the sound of the ocean waves come in, crash against the beach. I know that we think about that sound and it puts us at ease, gives us a little bit of joy, right? Our senses are tied, or our emotions are tied to sound. What about this? What about the sight of a majestic mountain? I, uh, I, I served in Seattle one, uh, one week as, as a, a disciple now leader for a group of seniors in high school, and the host home that we stayed in was in Seattle at the base of Mount Rainier. Outside of the dining room window, right in the middle window, as if it was framed by a por- like in a portrait, was Mount Rainier. Every morning you wake up, the blinds are open, and there is Mount Rainier in the distance. Imagine what kind of feeling that gives you when you see that kind of sight. All right, one last one. You walk into a home, and someone in the house is baking bread. Or perhaps cookies. I'll leave it open to you, whichever one you like better. There's the baking of cookies, the baking of, the baking of baked goods is clearly going on in this house. And you just, the smell fills your nostrils as you walk in the house. There's a sense of joy that that, I don't know about you, but I like food. And so that, that, there's a sense of joy that that brings me when I smell bread. And I get really disappointed when I find out it's a candle. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Burned. That's exactly what that candle needs to be. Burned to the ground. But when you when you when you smell the, the aroma of bread as it penetrates the house, it just it brings so much joy and comfort and all kinds of other senses along uh, with it. And the question that we're considering this morning is why do we sing in the church? Why why do we sing in the church? Wouldn't it be better and perhaps even more attractive if all of the people up on stage were paid professionals. People that were, were top-notch, all right? Paid professionals up here. But then it raises the question, why are you asked to sing along? Now, I told everyone to sing really loud. And you could have sung, if the key was G, you could have sung in G, or you could have joined me in F sharp. That'd been fine. Doesn't matter, but why would you be asked to sing along if what we're going for is really a professional kind of feeling? Why do we ask the congregants to sing? Why is that a thing? 
Worship, I think, as we'll see this morning, through singing, has a profound impact on our souls. It encourages us. It builds us up. It has a profound impact on us. We're going to be in two passages this morning, Colossians and Ephesians. And we're there because they're likely written together. They're two letters that if you read one and then you follow it quickly with the other, you're going to find some very similar statements made in each book. The two are very, very similar. And the two passages this morning, we're going to put one marker in one and one marker in another. We're going to flip back and forth. But these two passages give us a full picture of why we sing in the church. What that process that we just went through, what that's really doing. And I think what we're going to find is that much like a wonderful aroma, the singing has a powerful impact on the spiritual senses of the body of Christ. So let's read. First, we're going to read Ephesians 5, and then we're going to flip to Colossians, and we're going to read Colossians 3, um, following that immediately. So Ephesians 5, starting verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All right, now Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open this text to us. Help us to see how it speaks to our hearts. Conform our hearts to your word. As we think about singing, whether it be conviction that you bring to our hearts or joy that you bring to our hearts, I pray that we would receive it with thanksgiving. And Lord, that it would change us because we've encountered you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. They say there are two topics that you're never supposed to talk about in public. You know what they are. Religion and politics. There are actually a few topics that preachers are never supposed to preach on from the pulpit. You probably know many of them already, but I'm going to give them to you in case you don't. Preachers talk about this amongst ourselves, and we decide these are the things that you're never supposed to talk about from the pulpit. The first, and it's in this order, by the way, the first are the end times. You probably all know that already. You're not supposed to talk about that from the pulpit. The second is money. Not supposed to preach on that either. And the third, the music in the worship service. You're not supposed to preach on any of those three things. And the actual reason why you're not supposed to is actually all the same. First, everyone in the church has an opinion. The second, everyone thinks their opinion is the right one. So you're not supposed to do it. It's especially true of music. Now, you might be as tone deaf as a bloodhound. But by golly, you have an opinion on music. I guarantee it. And all the people that don't actually play a musical instrument all say the same thing. Well, no, I I don't play. I can't actually do it. But I know good music when I hear it. Right? Am I right? Everyone's got an opinion on that kind of thing. I've heard more than one five-point sermon about what this church actually needs. 
Well, you know what this church actually needs? The church actually needs a choir. Why don't we have a choir? Don't you know Jesus actually has a choir? You worship with a choir, a choir of angels. I'm just not edified unless I have a choir. Only to turn the corner and hear the exact opposite thing coming from somebody else. You're not thinking about putting a choir up there, are you? You know, Jesus didn't have a choir, and we ain't got no angels in this church. I'm just not edified by choirs. See, opinions, my dad used to tell me, opinions are like faces. Everybody's got at least two, all right? And so... (laughs) During the school year, if that's true, during the school year, when people are not on vacation and things like that, we typically have in this room anywhere between 150 to 170 people in here, which means that on any given Sunday, we have about 300 different opinions on the songs we sing, some of them favorable, some of them not so favorable. And they range in every direction from the key to the tempo to the style to the instruments to the singers, the song choice, the presentation, the number of songs sung, the number of times we stand or sit, and so on. Odds are, even if we managed one Sunday to please you with everything that we did, from the way we picked the songs, the way we sung the songs, the tempo, the key, everything was just straight to your liking. When you walked out, you sung praises about how great that worship service was. You thought, man, they really hit it out of the park today. Next week, swing and a miss. But the odds are even greater that your opinion, at least most of the opinions that are in this room, aren't going to win the day. Because they're completely different than the person sitting next to you. And then comes the crushing reality in the text of Scripture, which is why I'm not supposed to preach on texts like this or talk about things like this or get this personal. Because it requires me to say what we sing and how we sing it is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about anyone in this room. What we sing and how we sing it is not about us totally. Now, I say that, and I hope to show you in the Scriptures what our singing is really about. And some may walk out of this church, and you may think to yourself, well, the singing just wasn't to my liking. It wasn't exactly what I like. And you may express that opinion to others, maybe even to the point where it's a point of contention with you. And I'm telling you that you do that to your own peril. So when we overstep the boundaries of Scripture, and we make the less important things sources of contention, or perhaps you change the scriptural intent of items of our worship service to be catering to your own preferences, then you're in danger of subverting God's Word and making your law the most important thing on the agenda. With that in mind, let's take a look at a few things that these respective passages are saying to us about singing in worship and what it actually is, why we do it, and who it's for. First, singing is directed to the Lord as a result of the Spirit's filling. Singing is directed to the Lord as a result of the Spirit's filling. First, let's look at the Ephesians passage to see the, the command that Paul gives to the Ephesian church there in verse 18. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. 
Now, in the context uh, of this passage, Paul's been cautioning the Ephesian church uh, concerning how they're supposed to live. And when you think about the book of Ephesians, it's really easy to think about the outline of Ephesians. The first half of the book is the first three chapters where Paul lays down the doctrine of the faith. He basically tells us this is what's foundational, what what are true beliefs of the church. And in the last three chapters, chapters four to six, are what we should do with it. How do we live then because of that? So chapter five is going to be more in the point where Paul is instructing the church of the, of the Ephesians on how to live. Now in the preceding verses, in the verses just before where we're at this morning, he's been in telling them why they, they shouldn't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness like the rest of the world. Why you shouldn't engage in the same kind of practices that the rest of the world uh, engages in. And so he uses some opposites to make that point very clear, uh, how Christians are different from the rest of the world. So the world, he says, walks in darkness, but you don't. You walk in light. He says the world is foolish there in verse 17. They're foolish, but we understand what the will of the Lord is. And so now in verse 18, what does he say? They're filled with wine. They're drunk, but you are filled with the Holy Spirit. What does the result, what's the result of being drunk? What's the result of being filled with wine? The result is debauchery. But what is the result then of being filled with the Spirit? Well, he says it results in addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which is what we're going to talk about next. And, it's result, and, and it results then in singing and making melody. What does he say? To the Lord with your heart. I've said for the last three weeks, as we've been in this series on worship, what worship is, what it's not, what we do here on a Sunday morning, and why we do it, that worship is primarily to God, through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if I'm you, then what I would want to know is, well, how do I know if my singing is really to God? If my singing is really through Christ and if my singing is really by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think part of Paul's answer is your singing and making melody will be to the Lord with your heart. That's how you know that my, my worship, my singing is by the power of the Holy Spirit. That my singing is to the Lord with my heart. Well, what does it mean to sing to the Lord with your heart? We saw a couple of weeks ago with the woman at the well that Jesus encounters. We, we saw what he said there to her. That worship is heartfelt authenticity. That there should be a level of heartfelt authenticity as I sing. In other words, what I'm singing, I actually mean. That my hope really is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that I dare not trust a, a sweeter frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. In singing, then, I'm reminding myself that, that this is what I actually truly believe deep down in my soul. That there are lots of other things I lean on. Money, possessions, notoriety, my name, name recognition, business associates, friends, peer-to-peer networks. There's tons of things that I actually find myself relying on. But when I come here and sing truly, I remember that, no, my hope is built on nothing less 
than Jesus' blood and righteousness. What I'm remembering is that I'm only standing here. Able even to worship God. Even to be in His presence without a lamb in my hands. Because God provided the eternal sacrifice in His Son, the Lamb of God, on my behalf. And that it's only that I'm only here through His blood. Allowed to even come into His presence. Allowed to even sing to His name. And the only way that my sinful desires and my sinful soul even desires to sing praises to His name is by the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit empowering me to do so. My singing is then Spirit-empowered as much as it is an expression of the true emotions of my heart. Is this what I actually believe? That's the main question going on in my mind as we're singing. Is this what I actually believe? Is it true in my heart? If not, I'm a fraud. I'm a hypocrite. I'm a whole list of other things. If it's not true in my heart, the primary focus of our singing is that it's a representation of our true feelings to the Lord. There's zero instruction on what songs must sound like. What instruments should be exclusively used? What tempo these songs should be sung in? What key they should be sung in? Or how much like the way that I'm used to singing it, that song is? None of those things are there for us in Scripture. The first sermon I preached in this worship series was called Beyond Preferences. And there are a couple of reasons I titled it that. And the first reason is because as we begin to search the Scriptures for the biblical picture of worship, we should note how devoid of preferences the instructions in Scripture on worship really are. The Bible makes no command on particular instruments, at least not in an exclusive way. Use only these. But it makes a lot of commands as far as the inclusive nature of the instruments that we use. Like Psalm 50, verses 1 to 3. It'll appear on the screen behind me. Praise Him with the trumpet sound. Praise Him with the lute and harp. Praise Him with the tambourine and dance. Praise Him with uh, strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with the loud uh, clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The author is, is trying to include everything in the praise of God. Use all of it to the praise of the Lord. And so I knew that as we dove into the definition of Scripture and of uh, our definition of worship in Scripture, that this was one thing where we were going to see a recurring theme over and over, that the Scriptures are notably silent on style. But the main reason that I wanted to make that point, and the reason that I think uh, that I've been saying this for the last couple of weeks is because I'm convinced that the biblical authors didn't make a comment on style and didn't leave out their comments on style simply because they either didn't think of it or because they didn't want you to be concerned even with the style of music that was played. I'm convinced that they left it out because these kinds of things actually work against us making melody to the Lord with our hearts. See, when I come in 
to the worship service, and I'm so driven by my own preferences for the songs that I sing. There's no way my mind can be contemplating the goodness of the Lord to me. There's no way that my heart can be filled with gratitude for who God is if everything is driven by my desires. There's no way my, my heart can be singing the song to the Lord when I'm so discontented by keys and tempos and rhythms and quality of production. I think this is vital that we grasp this concept because the culture is telling us that singing in particular must be of a certain type or quality in order to be true and good and genuine. It has to be of a certain nature in order to be good and true and genuine. And the Bible is telling us the exact opposite. But some may push back and think, well... Songs that are you know, painfully slow or songs that are not in my key or songs that feel stodgy or singers that are off key or instrumentalists that miss notes or they're just distracting. How can I worship when I'm that distracted? But if ideal worship is supposed to be completely free of distraction, then God really should have commanded us to worship in a booth all alone. If we're distracted by Kids moving around, or people doing this or that, or, or people, next person singing off key. Somebody's been listening to me. Singing off key. It's distracting. It was really works against ideal worship then to worship together in a room. But that's not what he commanded. He wanted us to be together and, and wanted us to worship together. Further, if we have a difficult time worshiping in the midst of distraction, singing praise to God in the midst of moving around in chaos, then in a few weeks when we talk about worship being in all of life, how are we ever going to worship when our children are driving us crazy and getting on our last nerve? How are you going to worship at work when your boss just cussed you out? How are you going to worship when everything around you is frustrating that process. How are you going to turn everything in your heart to the Lord when everything is working, working against it? The reality is that these ways of thinking about worship, especially our singing, so prevalent in the culture, they work against what the Bible is actually telling us singing is for. But I think when we say that, that it's to the Lord by the result of the filling of the Spirit, I think most people understand that. If I, think, if I asked you, why do we sing in the church? Well, we sing to the Lord. I think would probably be the first response that you give. But the next things that Paul tells us might be a little bit different than what you're expecting. Second, singing is for the teaching, correction, and edification of one another. Singing is for the teaching, correction, and edification of one another. So if you turn back to your Colossians passage, Paul says to us there in verse 16... Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So similar to Ephesians, where you're filled with the Spirit, the result of the filling of the Spirit and the, and the result of the rich dwelling of the word of, of Christ is teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
Now, this, this has been a source of a lot of debate as you read this text as to how this passage should really be interpreted. Are we supposed to teach and admonish and then also sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Or are we to teach and admonish through the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? The ESV, which I read from, and you, a lot of you probably have in your laps, is, leaves it just a little bit ambiguous. But the NIV translates it like this. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. And I think the NIV has Paul's intention or captures Paul's intention right in this particular passage. And, it, and the reason that I think that is because the first part of verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ is what teaches us and corrects us. Let's understand that for sure. The word of Christ is what teaches us, it's what corrects us, it's what grows us in faith. But the word of Christ is also what we sing. The message about Christ, the message of who Christ is, the word to Christ is what we sing. So it's naturally then going to have a teaching impact on us, a correcting impact on us. And so the singing that we do is a part of the teaching and correcting ministry of the church. It's not just a preacher getting up in front of everybody, opening the word, reading the word, and teaching everybody what it means. That's certainly a part of the worship service, a major part of the worship service. I would consider that to be the main meal of the worship service, so to speak. But the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs all concern the word of Christ, which has a way of correcting and teaching us. I've always said that the songs that we sing catechize. They instruct the church. That's what catechize means. They instruct the church. So we sing the words, holy, holy, holy. You know the rest. Lord God Almighty. Or sorry, holy, 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 merciful and mighty. Second verse. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Why do we sing that lyric? If not to instruct us that God is in three persons, Father, Son, in spirit. It reminds me that I, what I believe is different than the Jehovah's Witnesses that showed up on my doorstep. Amen. That that's not what they believe. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, we introduced a song to the congregation, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. We'll sing it again in the future, but the, one of the lyrics in that song is whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know He will not leave me. I take content what He hath sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. And patiently I wait His day. And patiently I wait His day. This song is written by someone in grief. And they're reminding themselves of what the Word actually says about their grief. Why do we sing those lyrics if they don't correct us? Perhaps you're in the middle of, of a time in your life where you're tempted to believe that maybe God has forgotten all about you. 
He doesn't remember where you're at. He doesn't see your pain and affliction. Maybe he's too impotent to actually save you. But singing that, you're reminding yourself that he can turn your griefs away. That he's not punishing you. That whatever he ordains is right. And you're forced to sing, he never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. Songs that we sing have a correcting and teaching effect on us. In the worst of times in my life, I don't don't only remember the countless sermons I've heard or the countless scriptures I've read. I remember those too, hopefully. But in those really difficult times, I I also find myself singing. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Songs teach us and correct us in a way that that mere words can't. There are two things that I, I thought would be pivotal elements of our singing here at EBC since the first day that I got here. There are two things that I really wanted to do from the first day. The first was singing some of the good, rich hymns of the faith and introducing also some new and more modern hymns that are being composed every year, or some of them being updated every single year. Now, it's a slow process, and it's going to be still going on, and it'll be going on in perpetuity, but one of the reasons it's a slow process is because how many new songs can you introduce to a congregation every month? Luke and I did some experimenting as we were going through it, and we found out two. Two is about how many you can bear. <laughs> it's, it's pretty difficult to do any more than that, both to teach the, the instrumentalists that are playing along and the musicians that are, that are leading us in singing, and also to teach the congregation. It, it's about the max, and that's kind of pushing it sometimes. But the second thing that I wanted to do is actually get the printed pages of the songs in the hands of the people in our worship services, and particularly for the young families who probably have grown up without hymnals, who have grown up without having that printed page in their hand. Not only do I, I want to teach our young families or our families good and doctrinally rich songs, but I wanted to teach them, I, I want them to teach them to their children at home. And there's a, a level of importance that's communicated by that printed page as they take it home in a way that digital does not communicate. You probably know this because most of you prefer to read a paper book instead of a digital book because it has a level of importance and gravity that's communicated with it. And so that's part of the reason for the printed pages of music is to communicate, take this home, teach it to your children, sing around the table. So it's giving parents and families this kind of weekly hymnal that they can use at home. So parents should be encouraged to teach these, these hymns to their children Because when trials come in their life, when they hear the doctrine of faith being taught through the scriptures from the pulpit, what you want to ring between their ears are the hymns of the church. Not just the words that I say. 
And not only the words of Scripture, those are foundationally important, but you also want what rings in their ears to be the hymns of the church. You want the Word of God and the expression of the church's music to come together in harmony in their minds. Not only have I been told this over and over, but all the songs I know say it. But do you see what Paul is saying here? Is that your singing is teaching one another. It's teaching one another. In the Ephesians passage, he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He makes it more plain there. We are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In Colossians, it's teaching and admonishing one another. But in both passages, our songs are not only directed to the Lord, they're directed to each other for the teaching and correcting and building up the other in faith. Your singing is not just to the Lord. It's for the person sitting next to you. Even if you're off key, you should turn to the person next to you and say, you're welcome. <laughs> this morning we dropped out the instruments on the last verse, something we'll do quite regularly on going on forward. But the reason that I wanted you to do that is so that you could hear the people around you singing. Just hear the people around you singing. Brothers and sisters, there's no more encouraging thing to my heart, no more warming feeling in the world than to hear a room full of disciples of Jesus singing with gusto the hymns of faith. And believe it or not, I guarantee you there is more than one person in this room that's having a hard time singing praise to God this morning. But if your heart can't muster the praise to God, then imagine how it feels to be able to close your eyes and to hear other people around you singing, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. It's like ocean waves pouring in. It's like that sound that you hear when you sit on the beach. To hear brothers and sisters around you that believe the same thing I do. And in the midst of difficulty and trial, which I know they've all been through, they're singing on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. In both Colossians and Ephesians, oh, let me back up. Third point singing is an overflow of thanksgiving. Singing is an overflow of thanksgiving. In both Colossians and Ephesians, the praise of the church in worship service is a product of the same thing. Look at Colossians 3, 17, because that's the passage you're already in. Then we'll flip to Ephesians. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. But then look at Ephesians 5, 20. And giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The underlying reason for our singing, it seems, is the abundance of gratitude that we have toward God the Father. Pause just for a moment and think about how strange singing really is. 
Just think about how strange singing really is. I could take the most powerful hymn that you've ever heard, which I've done a couple of these, and I could just read the words to you. And I can almost guarantee you most of the power of that song would be sapped out completely. Because there is something about the instruments coming together and the voices and everything that gives it its power. It's as if speaking the word of thanksgiving to God is insufficient for what I feel on the inside. That the gratitude in my heart to God is simply just so much that you can't just speak the words. So we add to our speaking. We add instruments. We add melodies and harmonies. We add rhythms. We add the treble and the bass. And the singing then becomes just an exuberant form of communication. It's like super speech, if you will. It's as if we're so overwhelmed with thanksgiving to God for what He has done that to just speak that would be insufficient. It needs more. And think about the language that Paul is using to lay the foundation for our singing and our thanksgiving in both of these passages. In one, he says, be filled with the Spirit. In the other, he says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. The idea in both of these is that the Word of Christ and the Holy Spirit are filling every nook and cranny of the church body. There's not a place where the Word of Christ does not dwell, where the Spirit has not filled To the point where the church is bursting at the seams with praise to God. It's very similar to those smells from the oven that permeate the house. It's as if Paul is saying, if the bread baking in your heart is made by the Spirit of God, then out of your mouth will come the aroma of song. If the Holy Spirit... The Spirit of God is the one baking the bread in your heart. Then out of your mouth is going to come the aroma of song. The singing of the church will tell you much about the theology of the church. About the joy in God found in the church. Are we merely learning true things about God? So we can impress our friends? Or we can cut down, cut away at the unbeliever that we find that dare challenge our belief in God? Are we merely learning true things about God so that we can do that? Or are we coming to enjoy and rejoice in God? If the Spirit is baking the bread, then church, open the oven doors and fill His house with the aroma of praise. Fill it in your homes, in your cars, in front of your children. Let them hear you sing, ever how bad. But we see what happens then if when we speak about singing, it's mostly about our preferences. I'm not saying that's in total here or anywhere. It's in all churches. That's the way we've come to think about singing. That it's merely governed by our preferences. You know, oh, I don't like that, or I wish we could do it this way, or what about that way? We show the people that we're talking to what's really going on in our heart. We're giving everyone a peek behind the curtain. 
We're telling them singing in the church is about the singing, the songs that I prefer or the way that I prefer them. But God's word is actually telling us the singing of the church, regardless of the particulars, is directed to God. It's for the person sitting next to me for their instruction and their correction. I'm participating in that as I sing. It's for their encouragement. And it's also done out of the abundance of thanksgiving in my heart. So then what do we do with that? What do we do today or tomorrow? One, we start by teaching these songs to our children. Teach them to your children. Take those bulletins home with the words in it and teach them to your children. Even when your children are very, very young, we have a lot of kids in our worship service typically, and the reason that we do that is because we think that the way children begin to understand worship is by watching their parents worship. Amen. That's how they come to understand it, by watching their parents do Much like as the parent would change the diaper of a newborn baby on the changing table, and they would talk to them, they, they say words to them. Because they want them to grow into understanding the language. Well, worship is also a language. You don't just expect your kid to learn how to speak English and you, we're gonna, I'm going to wait until they turn four before I ever talk to them. Of course not. You start talking to them immediately. And we do the same thing with our children in worship. We begin teaching them at a very young age. You can teach your kids doctrine at a very, very young age by introducing them to songs. They'll learn them. They'll memorize them. And when you teach them the songs that we actually sing, when they come here and they're in our worship service, what are they going to do when we sing those songs? They're going to sing with us. I know this one. I can't read, but I know this one. And you're teaching them doctrine at a very young age. Put the music on in the car. Put it on everywhere. Sing it yourself. Enjoy it. But the other thing which that speaks to, the big, bigger principle at work here is that the vast majority of the work in worship is preparation. Prepare your own hearts in coming into worship. Don't just come in here cold. Don't just come in here and expect everything to be moved in your heart toward the Lord when you just got done arguing with your spouse in the car as you walked in. Happens to all of us. But instead, take a moment to prepare your heart before you ever even get here. Spend some time thinking about what things in my life should I be thankful to the Lord for? What sorts of things has he done for me for which I should express my gratitude? Maybe, maybe my singing then will be informed by all the things in my heart for which I am deeply, deeply thankful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that as we consider your word, it would sit heavy on our heart, all of us. That we would understand that we exist for the person sitting next to us too. We exist for your glory and we exist for the person sitting next to us. Pray we would take ownership of that responsibility, that deep seated responsibility that we have to the Christians in this room to be here for their edification.
for their building up, to consider that they might be suffering, they might be having a hard time singing these songs. Pray that we would lend our voices to help encourage them, perhaps even correct them along the path of righteousness that you're leading us on. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.